It is a pleasure to be with you all once again this week. Only a few weeks left in our study in 1 John, which brings us to 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 through 17. So as we pick up this text yet again, let us begin by reading our verses today. 1 John 5, verses 13 through 17. Here, as the Apostle John begins to bring this letter to a close, he offers these words of encouragement. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us, and we know that he hears us, and whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will for him, Give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make request for this. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Well, as I am sure most, if not all of you, have noted, there is a brand new McDonald's that's about to open up just down the hill from here. Some of you are more excited than others. I'm excited but disappointed for I know what it will mean for my weekly intake of calories. That's not going to be a healthy thing. But regardless of how you feel about the end product and regardless of how I feel about that end product, I have thoroughly enjoyed watching that process unfold for these last few months and, and watching that construction process. One of the reasons why I always enjoy watching that sort of project is because I know so little about construction And so it is somewhat of a a magic trick for me to watch and see, ooh, what step are they going to take next? And how many people will be working today and how much noise will be coming into my office as they accomplish that work? Even if you had had not watched that particular construction over these last few months, you understand the basic process that takes place. And as an outside observer who knows very little about construction, I, I do not really understand everything they do. But I do understand that the basic process looks pretty similar each time. I know that in building anything like McDonald's, the first step is not just pouring concrete out onto a bare patch of ground and beginning to build. No, the, the beginning steps are, take a much longer process than that. And crews come out and they survey the land and they excavate and they take away fill or loose soil for the sake of, of providing a solid foundation. Once they do that long work of building a foundation, they're able to pour the concrete and the building's able to take shape. And and each day, it seemed, a different crew comes in and takes care of the specific tasks set before them. And even though I do not understand that process, and I trust most of us in here do not know all the details that go into that process, we know, of course, there's a plan in place. And we know that while we lack confidence in that sort of execution, that the people behind the plan are very confident in what's happening. For those people behind the plan understand why they need to be so careful in laying that foundation. They understand before any work is done exactly what the final product will look like. They know the square footage. They know what crews they will hire for it. They understand the need of each and every one of those crews. And they have a basic idea of when the final product will be presented. Everything follows according to that confident plan at play. We, as casual observers, just watch it all unfold and We trust that they know what they're doing. As we look at our text today and consider the 
the commands given in 1 John 5, we see that we ourselves are somewhat caught up in our own process of building. Not building a fast food chain restaurant, thankfully, although if that's the work you do, thank you. Uh, the, the task that has set, been set before us is, is this grander task of really building the kingdom of God itself. It's this task of daily doing that constructive work that builds up our own faith, daily doing those tasks that God has assigned to us. And to the casual observer in the world around us, it can easily look as if we have no idea what we're doing. It can easily look as if this process is just kind of taken up willy-nilly and we're just making it up as we go. But as we consider the text today, and I hope that as we just consider our own faith, we understand again that there's a very confident plan unfolding. We understand that there's a specific purpose for every single thing we're called to do. And we can know, just like the many people involved in the construction down the hill at McDonald's, that if we simply take each day and take each step and do those basic tasks that God has set before us, we too can rest confidently in the fact that the end product is already set in stone. That God knows what he is doing and simply calls us to walk in daily obedience. And so as we look at our text today, my hope is that we too can walk away and look at this process of our Christian faith and understand this is a confident plan. We too can have complete assurance not just in our current standing before God, but in what we're called to accomplish every day. We too can have confidence to do those tasks set before us. For those of you who do not yet know Christ, my prayer is that you might be struck by the confidence of the text. You might be amazed by the amount of confidence the believer has, and my prayer is that you can see how doubtful and unsteady your own foundation is. And in the end, I pray that you place your faith in the one true steady foundation that is Jesus Christ. With that being said, let's go and open up in a word of prayer and we will begin to unpack this confident plan. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for today. We thank you for those glorious songs that we've already sung to you. What beautiful truths we were already able to sing as we sang of your faithfulness to us, God. As we were reminded of the fact that it is you who holds us fast through your Son. It is you who ultimately accomplishes your will, your purpose for us, and it does not rest upon our own perfections. It does not rest upon our own innate abilities, God. But it comes always from you. I pray that as we look at the text today, God, that we as believers might find our confidence, that we might be reminded why we can be so certain, not simply of where we've been, but where we are headed. As always, God, I pray that you remove all distractions from us. Lord, I pray that our focus might be entirely upon you, upon your Son, upon the Word that you've given us, Holy Spirit, be at work in us today. I pray for those who have not yet placed their faith in Jesus Christ. I pray that even as they listen to the text, they might realize how unsteady the foundation upon which they sit is. I pray they understand that they sit at the precipice of eternity. And apart from placing their faith in Jesus Christ, they will be cast into hell. And I pray you save them this moment, this morning. God bless our time today. Might it all be done to your glory. And we pray all these things according to your precious Son, Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we begin to pick up our text this morning and look at verse 13, we find ourselves at that foundational point that is so important to understand, this foundational confidence of every believer. We see John describe that confidence and describe that foundation just there in verse 13, where again he says, These things I have written to you, who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Here John does something that is so helpful to us as readers, isn't it? Here John, in a very black and white manner, says, in case you haven't figured it out yet, here's the reason why I wrote you this letter. 
I really wish Paul always did that in his letters, but he doesn't always do that. And there's a lot of debate sometimes. But with John, it makes it abundantly clear. We know exactly why 1 John was written. We know exactly why John wrote it. He wrote it so that we who have Jesus Christ can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we have eternal life. And as he writes this, then we see John is really beginning to bring this letter to a close. And as we take a step back, we can really appreciate the overall structure of this letter. And we can think back of how John introduced this letter in 1 John chapter 1 with an overview of who Jesus Christ is, who that Son of God is. If you were with us those months ago, you remember us discussing Jesus as fully God, fully man, Jesus being the one whom John himself touched, John himself saw, he heard. John painstakingly walked through that overview of Jesus Christ, and as he went through this letter, he then discussed the results of placing our faith in Jesus. And in the end, he tells us, here's why I wrote those things, so that you can know. In writing in this manner, John is doing something that should be familiar to any reader of John, namely, anyone who's also read through the Gospel of John. For when you read through the Gospel of John, perhaps surprisingly, you see John doing the exact same thing. For just as he opens 1 John with an overview of that incarnation, an overview of Jesus, fully God and fully man, how does he open up the Gospel of John? Well, with the same overview, doesn't he? We don't have time to read through all of it, but if if you recall the language of John chapter 1, you recall that it's very similar language, for John 1 opens up with these words. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. He goes on and discusses the Word made flesh. He discusses that incarnation in the same way he discusses in 1 John. So too, just as he writes 1 John, when he unfolds that gospel, he writes out the ministry of Christ. He writes out that earthly ministry. He writes out various miracles, various parables. He writes out, most importantly, his crucifixion and resurrection. And as he comes to the very end of that letter, he does exactly what he does in 1 John. For as he begins to bring that letter to a close in John chapter 20, we read these words of John in 30 and 31. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of disciples, which are not written in this book. But these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And yet again, we see John, having written this this lengthy exposition of the life of Jesus, comes to the end and he says, in case you haven't figured it out yet, reader, here's why I've written all this down. It's so that you would believe in Jesus. And that you would have eternal life. And so when we jump to 1 John, it should not surprise us to see he does the same thing. Having spoken gloriously and beautifully of the incarnation, having spoken of all these tests of what it looks like to really be in the faith, he comes to the end and he says, I write these things to you so that you who have already believed might continue to believe. That you might remember that you have eternal life. It's an incredible theme when you consider it. And yet... It's also a theme that's probably really familiar sounding to, very, to most of us, I would guess. That is to say, this language of eternal life is probably nothing new to anyone in here who's spent much time in church. In the same way that when we read the Gospel of John, there's not necessarily anything all that unfamiliar to most of us who've spent much time in church. We get the miracles, we understand that Jesus was crucified, he was risen again from the dead, we get that Jesus offers eternal life. In the same way, we come to 1 John and we, we understand those basic foundations of the gospel. We get that we have eternal life. And so the question that I think a lot of us ask is, is that okay, John? 
that's great we have eternal life, but how does that answer the problem we're facing? What does that have anything to do with false teachers, with trials and tribulations? What does that have to do with anything we actually face now? John, you're living in the past. Those are basic foundations which we all readily accept. But of course, we understand as Christians that this idea of eternal life is far more than just some philosophical proposition. It's, it's more than just some foundational doctrine that we believe and then move past. It is something we need to hear every single day of our lives. We see that need very clearly in the audience of John, don't we? For despite having put their faith in Jesus, despite having very clearly understood who Jesus was, those believers faced a very difficult and, and disturbing and confusing moment. For they had that difficult experience of, of watching fellow believers or people who would once profess faith abandon it all. They had that experience of seeing brothers, sisters, family, friends who once professed faith secede from the church and, and secede while telling them, hey, just to let you know, John's message really isn't the full truth. And to really be saved, you need to believe well, this additional proposition. In the midst of that false teaching, it was very clear that many of these believers in John's day were incredibly confused. And it seemed many of them had begun to doubt their salvation. They'd begun to doubt the, the reality of Christ and the certainty of the eternal life that he gives us. And so while eternal life in the gospel might have been basic Christianity, it was a message they needed to hear again. So too, we can appreciate that today. For while we do not face the exact same events that those believers in John faced, we still face a world that can easily cause us to doubt our belief, don't we? I mean, how many of us have, have witnessed someone who once professed faith in God abandon it all? And as they abandon it all, they reassure us and tell us, no, they actually have more truth than we do. And even if you're the most steadfast of believers, at least in that moment, it can cause you to question it can cause you to think, why? Well, I thought people can't lose their salvation, so how's this happening? Maybe, maybe I don't understand Scripture as much as I did. Maybe they're on to something here. Same thing can happen when we are bombarded with countless unbiblical worldviews and beliefs daily. And as people attempt to show us that, that our faith, while beautiful to us, is actually quite offensive and outdated, it is old-fashioned, and really to be up with the times we need to adopt these new propositions, these new principles... And again, even those amongst us who are mature can, can respond in a moment of doubt. In the same way, as we struggle with sin, we can doubt our salvation. As we struggle to understand the text, we can doubt whether or not the Holy Spirit really indwells us. When we struggle through any and every one of these trials and tribulations, we can find ourselves in the exact same place that John's audience found themselves. We find ourselves in that place of doubt. And I trust that in a room this size, there are some of you this morning who are suffering greatly under that weight of doubt, who are wondering whether or not that foundation is as secure as we would like you to believe. And so all of us understand that this theme of John, again, is not just some academic principle. It is a balm to our soul. It is a soothing ointment that is placed upon us in the times of trials and the times of struggles. And to hear this provision that John speaks of in verse 13 is to hear something that is so incredibly encouraging and soothing daily. For as John has exhaustively sought to show us, 
we really can know without a doubt. And the reason why we can know is not because we have confidence in ourselves, but because of the certain foundation we have. And in fact, John, 1 John chapter 1 through 5 is really this process of, of John coming in and removing that fill, getting us back down to that bedrock and reminding us, here is where your faith stands, believer. And where it stands is, is again, not upon us as individuals, but upon a real Jesus Christ. A Jesus Christ who, who shares our flesh, a Jesus Christ who is fully God and fully man, a Jesus Christ who John himself again saw and touched A Jesus Christ who spoke and spoke bluntly regarding our assurance. A Jesus who said things like this back in John 14. John 14 verses 1 through 6 where Jesus himself is speaking to doubting disciples. There Jesus, fully God and fully man, offered these words. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. And how how do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is the Jesus upon whom we lay our foundation of the faith. This is the Jesus who physically defeated death, who physically rose from the dead, who returned to heaven, the Jesus who will physically return for every single one of his children. This is the bedrock and the foundation upon which everything we do is built. And regardless of how long we've been in the faith, we need to desperately, daily remember that that is the foundation upon which everything comes. That is what brings us assurance. That is what makes us steady. The moment we forget that foundation is the moment we suddenly become shaky in our building process. The moment we forget that is the moment we begin to doubt. And so the Apostle John, not doubting the salvation of his readers, not doubting whether or not they understand the gospel, writes again, and he tells them, you know this, believer. You know Jesus, and if you know Jesus, if you have the Son, you presently have eternal life. It's a life that is abundant. It's a life that's not going to be taken away. It is a life that will take you through all, all eternity, which you will enjoy again with your physical and risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Because this is our foundation, we can be certain of our salvation. We can be certain that we're saved from our sins. We can be certain that God loves us. We can be certain that we're going to heaven. Not because we can will ourselves to hold fast, but because as we sang a few minutes ago, because Jesus Christ holds us fast. Jesus Christ cannot fail us. He is the good shepherd. And so he will keep us safe. And he will take us home. This is a beautiful thought, but I fear and I I trust that many of us struggle to believe this daily. And so as we consider this foundation, the the immediate question, of course, believer, is do you feel that confidence? Do you know where you are going when you die? And if in answering that question, your mind immediately starts going to, well, I don't know, because I lost my temper the other day, 
or I don't know because I really blew it in a chance to share the gospel with someone, or I don't know because I was a jerk to my wife, I don't know because I was a jerk to my kids, I don't know because I failed at work, well, then you've missed the point. The second someone asks you whether or not you're certain if you are going to heaven, believer, you can say, yes, absolutely, because the blood of Christ covers me. And I know that if I have the Son, I have eternal life. Believer, this just isn't some random doctrine that can help us as we mature. This is foundational to our daily obedience. And so John says, we need this truth. We need to feel this assurance. And once we have that foundation laid, we are able to actually then confidently move forward and and obey Christ. We're able to confidently move forward and build that which God has called us to build. Yet still, with that point being made, the question remains, what, what does that mean? What exactly are we called to accomplish daily? What tasks can we confidently carry out as we build up this kingdom? To that end, John offers this instruction in verses 14 through 15. This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from him. Here is our confident construction, our confident task set before us every single day. It is the spiritual discipline of prayer. And in the same way we can be absolutely certain in our salvation, we too can be absolutely certain in the power and efficacy of prayer. Now if you've been with us through our study of 1 John, you understand this is not the first time John has spoken of prayer, nor the first time he speaks of prayer so confidently. Turn with me back to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, verses 21 through 22, we see that concept of prayer and another reason why we can be so confident in it. There John writes this, again 1 John 3, verse 21, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. If you recall back in our study of 1 John chapter 3, these words fall at the tail end of John's discussion about our identity in Christ. That is to say, our identity as children of God. And as he comes to this passage on prayer, he in essence is saying the reason why we pray And really the reason why we can be so confident in prayer is tied to that identity. Because we are children of God and as a result we are striving to live in obedience to the Father. As we live out our identity then we know we can have confidence standing before the creator of the universe. We know that because we are his children he will answer our prayers. As we jump back to our text this morning in chapter 5 we see that same confidence but it's tied to a slightly different reason. For rather than speaking of our identity in Christ, John speaks of our confidence being rooted in this idea of asking according to God's will. If we ask according to his will, he hears us. Now, when I first reference this idea of God's will, for many believers, unfortunately, I'm referencing something that doesn't give you a great amount of confidence. For many people that profess faith, think of the will of God as being some grand mystery, some riddle only the most spiritually mature can solve. 
And there are many believers who carry on this discussion about the will of God as if it's always hidden from us. As if we're playing the lottery. In the same way we just pick some random numbers and hope to win a million bucks. Not that you should play the lottery, but that's a whole other issue. In the same way we just pick some random numbers, so too in prayer we just throw out a few petitions and we think, well, hopefully that's the will of God. But I, I hope it's the will of God, but if it's not, it's not going to happen. But that's not what the will of God is when described in Scripture, is it? Thankfully, in God's grace, the will of God is, is far more simple than that, is far clearer than that. In fact, the will of God is particularly clear as it's described within the context of prayer. To see that will of God on display, just consider the words of Jesus Christ himself and turn with me back to Matthew chapter 6. For in Matthew chapter 6, we have this incredibly practical discussion that Jesus Christ has in which his disciples have asked Teach us how to pray. And in the response that Jesus gives us, not only do we see this model of prayer, we also are given a picture of what it means to pray according to the will of God. Look at those words with me, if you will, in Matthew chapter 6, we'll pick it up in verse 9. There Jesus says this, Pray then in this way, Our Father who is in heaven, Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the power and the kingdom. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Believer, if you want to know what it looks like to pray the will of God, well, look no further than Matthew 6. For here we see very practically and very simply what it means to pray this will. And what we see from this passage incredibly is that the will of God includes any number of things that are both quite simple as well as grand. For here we are taught to pray that God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray for God's name to be hallowed. This is a creation-wide request. God, let your glory be known throughout all the universe. You cannot get any bigger than that. And yet, coming off that, we have other prayers like, give us bread today. Give us the food we need to live. And it is hard to imagine how you can get any more particular or smaller than that request. And what this prayer shows us is that really anything and everything in between can can fall into this pattern of praying according to the will of God if if it is all subjugated under the understanding of, of God's rule. And God's will, for again, we see that is the ultimate desire of our prayers, according to Christ. For this prayer begins with this request for God's name to be hallowed, for God's glory to be known. Our prayers are always undergirded by this idea of God's will being done and not our own. And in fact, one commentator in describing this prayer speaks of that desire of God's will really as the the golden thread which tie all these other petitions together. That that thought that says, God, give me today my daily bread if it is your will. Uh, God caused this to happen assuming it's your will. It is that faithful and humble prayer of a child to his father. The child who has these desires set on his heart, who knows that only the father can provide, and so the child asks the father, but the child also knows the father doesn't always say yes. The father will ultimately only give that which is best for the child. And so we too, 
As we strive to pray according to the will of God, we pray with that humble dependence. We pray with that faith. And as we turn back to 1 John chapter 5, we pray knowing that when we pray in this manner, that we can know without any doubt that God's will will in fact be accomplished. And that even if it is not according to what we had hoped, it is ultimately for our good. It is what is best. And so understanding that concept of the will of God, look again at verse 14 and 15 and and understand what John is teaching here regarding our daily construction, our daily task. For knowing who we are before Christ and understanding what the will of God is, generally speaking, John tells us that we daily confidently stand before God. We relish that opportunity. We understand how glorious of a thing it is to say that when we ask, God hears us. Do you understand that? Do you understand how amazing that is that God hears you? I mean, again, I think of this in terms of parenting. And I think how easily I can become um, or feel pestered by my kids at times. They're out of town, so I can say this. Right? And if you've been around little kids, you understand how this is. Hey, Dad, Dad. Hey, Dad. Dad, hey, Dad, look at this. Hey, Dad, 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 can we do this? Hey, Dad, Dad, right? Rarely is anything they say really uh, incredibly important. It's not a life or death situation. They ask over and over and over and over again. And since I'm a fallen father, I can sometimes tune them out. And while other people might hear them speaking, I'm, I'm off in another place mentally. I'm not hearing a thing. Right? Any parent can do this. But praise be to God that that is not the type of father we're praying to. Praise be to God that regardless of how minor your concerns are, it is a concern to God. Praise be to God that, that he hears you. Six-year-old praying for the first time, God hears you. 66-year-old praying for the gazillionth time, God hears you. God hears all of his children's requests. And shockingly, God takes the time to answer our requests. God gives us, not simply what we ask for, but gives us what is best. And so we stand in awe of that generosity. We relish the opportunity to stand before him. We let the desires that have been set upon our heart made known to him. And we do so confidently looking for his, resp- for his response. Knowing that he will respond. And knowing that his will is accomplished. If you ever have any doubts in that, you can simply consider his track record and see the infinite number of prayers that God has already fulfilled. You see the unbelievable number of examples of his faithfulness both to us and to all of his people. And so we pray with confidence, knowing that this is what God wants us to do. We pray with confidence, knowing that his will will be done. Now, as I say that, I understand that this does not mean that you and I will not be disappointed at times. For while we can be confident that God's will will be done, we're not necessarily confident that his will is always what we had hoped, is it? We know the pain of that that request that's not granted. Students, you know the pain when God does not answer that request for you to pass a test in class. 
we understand the pain when a request for, for a relationship to work out isn't worked out. We understand the pain when we're praying for our spouse to return and our spouse doesn't return. When we pray for a lost kid and we don't see that kid come to faith. When we're praying for our father who has cancer to be healed of that cancer and God doesn't heal him of that cancer. We have to understand and appreciate that what John here is saying is not that prayer treats God as some genie in a bottle and that if we simply ask in the right way that the God will grant us that. Nor are we trying to suggest that as believers we simply respond to every answer to prayer with a smile on our face pretending that, yeah, that's exactly what I hope has happened. No, we understand that God's will is ultimately done. And we also understand that when our request is not granted to us in the way we hope, that we too can bring that disappointment before God. Knowing that as the psalmist says in Psalm 34, 18, that the Lord is near the brokenhearted. He saves the crushed in spirit. And even though we might not always understand why God answers prayers the way he does, we know that it's will for us to, to seek him out. We know it's his will for us to be comforted in him. We know it's his will for us to trust him. And so we pray, God, God, I don't understand. God, help me understand. God, help me see your glory in that. Regardless of what else happens in life, we can know for certain that that is praying the will of God. And so even if we do not understand everything that God is doing in our lives, even if we do not understand why God answers some prayers while seemingly remains silent in others, we can know generally what it means to pray his will. And so daily we seek out that will. Daily we confidently make our requests before, uh, made known to him. And daily we confident look forward to hearing that response or seeing that response. And again, the question we must ask ourselves is, does this describe us? Do we pray in confidence? Do we pray eagerly wanting to know the will of God or do we simply pray selfish petitions? And do we pray for the glory of God to be made known or are we just staying put on these random daily thoughts? Well, the confident prayer of the believer is that grand prayer of Matthew. It's prayers that touch every square inch of this universe, knowing that our God is all-powerful. And so, believer, let us pray with that confidence. Let us pray knowing God hears us, and let us pray fully knowing that God will answer us. This, too, is an amazing thought. This, too, is an amazing thing that we could dwell on for days on end as we consider the beauty of the opportunity that is put before us. Yet even as beautiful as this is, and as confident as we can be in offering these prayers, there's still a bit of confusion, it would seem, from John's believers, and there's still that room of confusion regarding, okay, well, what does that then actually look like day to day? What shape do these prayers take as we build up that structure? What exactly is the content that we include? What exactly should we pray for? What does it mean in the midst of our own daily circumstances to pray the will of God, John? And to that end, John gives us verses 16 and 17 where we move from that confident construction to that daily and confident practice of prayer. Pick it up with me again, if you will. Verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make a request for this. All unrighteousness is sin, And there is a sin not leading to death. Now, if you're like me, 
When you first read these verses, where does your mind immediately go? Sin leading to death. What's the sin leading to death? What does that mean? Your mind immediately jumps to that, that difficult concept and, and you want to know, okay, so what does that mean so that I know I don't do that? And it's good to ask that question. But before delving into that concept, it's important to first take a step back and hear that, that first broad call that John gives. For it's a call that is very easily overlooked in our daily prayer life. You see the call in the first half of verse 16 again. There, as John gives an example of here is what it means to pray according to the will of God, we read these words. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leaving death, he shall ask and God will for him give life to those who commit sin, not leading to death. In a society that is so individualistic as ours is, in a society where we so often speak of our own individual faith, our private prayer life with God, our private quiet time with God, it is striking to see that the one example of prayer that that John gives is not a prayer of individual petition. It's a prayer of intercession. And what John shows us is, okay, believer, here's what it looks like to pray. When you pray and as you pray for fellow believers, here's what you pray. It's not where most of our minds immediately go when we think of our own prayer life, is it? And yet, it's immediately what John touches on, and for good reason, because it's really the language that Jesus used earlier in Matthew, isn't it? For if you recall, that Lord's Prayer that Jesus gives us is not given with the words, My Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Nor do we pray, forgive me my sins. Those things are fine to pray, of course, but in the model prayer, Jesus speaks in that corporate role. It is our Father who is in heaven. Forgive us our sins as we forgive others. Every request, every petition is made within the community of believers. And it is assumed then in Scripture, it is commanded in Scripture, that as we pray, we pray with other people in mind. And it is with that communal focus that we can understand the basic process or the basic practice that John describes here. For John ultimately is describing something that all of us can relate to. For he says here, daily, as we go about our daily life, if and when we see a brother committing a sin, we are to do something. Now I trust all of you have seen a a brother or sister in Christ sin, haven't you? I hope you have. If you haven't, that means you're just not watching any other brother or sister in Christ. We see this daily. And so John says, when this happens, go ahead and complain about it to other people. Thank God that you're more righteous than he. and Move on with your daily life. No, we don't respond with that, do we? John says, when we see that sin, what is our immediate response? We pray for them. Namely, we pray for their forgiveness. On their behalf, we go before God. We say, God, please forgive my brother or sister. Oh, God, it pains me to see them committing the sin. God, open their eyes to that truth. Forgive them of that sin and continue to build them up in the faith, God. It's such a simple prayer. But it does require a certain level of maturity from us, doesn't it? For it requires us to to really train ourselves to think of our brothers and sisters in Christ in a way that goes contrary to to what our culture says and does. 
If we live in a culture that loves to just attack our brothers and sisters when we see them in sin. We see a brother or sister in Christ sin and we say, aha, I knew it. I knew you did that. I knew you would say something like that. And we feast upon their shame and we heap guilt upon them as if their loss is our win. But what a Christless activity. No, we do not bite, bite and devour one another. Our natural response is one of care and compassion. We see a brother and sister in Christ's sin and we know that we too are sinners. We too need the prayer of others and so we lift them up. We pray for them because we love them. We pray for them because we, we believe their profession of faith and we know what God wants for them. And so we pray to that end. And so we see a brother or sister in Christ's sin. We bring that sin before God. And as we intercede on their behalf, we again look forward to God's will being accomplished. And what is God's will for his children? What's well, forgiveness? It's sanctification. And as hard as it is to believe, what John reminds us here is we have a part to play in that process. That our prayers are answered, that God uses this as a means to continually draw people to himself to raise us up in the faith. And so again, we relish that opportunity, we rejoice in that opportunity, and we daily practice that habit. We do so because they are our brothers. Because they are our sisters. And as such, we have a unique love for them that is different from the love we have for the rest of the world. Their loss is our loss. Their pain is our pain. And so we pray. But there's a key phrase in that discussion, isn't there? Because the assumption here is that we're praying for our brothers and sisters. And in fact, I think it's really ultimately that theme that, that John begins to unpack there in verse 16 and 17. For we understand that not everyone who claims to be our brother or sister is in fact our brother and sister. That has been one of the primary points of 1 John, isn't it? Time and time again, he has said there are these brothers who don't love other brothers, but that actually means they're not a brother. There are these sisters who claim to be sisters, but they proclaim a different Christ, and so they're actually not your sister. And it is ultimately, I think, those false brothers and sisters that John has in mind when he says that there is a sin leading to death, I do not say that he should make request of this. There is debate over what this sin leading to death is. If you grew up in the Catholic Church, perhaps you remember discussions of mortal sins, an idea that some sins are more heinous than others, and it's passages like this that the Catholic Church uses. Other people assume that John is referencing that blaspheming of the Holy Spirit that Jesus speaks of in the Gospels, and that could come into play. But based off of everything else that John has said within this letter, I think the safest interpretation is not to drag in those other passages, but it's to say this is the sin that those false teachers are guilty of. It's the sin of professing a false Christ. For remember, John's promise is that if you have Christ, you have life. If you do not have Christ, you do not have life. You have death. And so those that profess another Christ are not your brothers and sisters. They are not in the light. They do not have life. They are in the darkness. Their heresy, their false teaching is serious. It is damning. It is harmful to the church. And so as we pray, even as we respond to that false teaching, we, we pray with that distinction in mind. 
And we do not simply pray for God to ride off that false teaching. We pray for God to squelch that false teaching. To silence that false teaching. We pray ultimately for God's glory to become. But that means we pray ultimately for judgment. John here is trying to help us see that that even in our daily practice and prayer life, we ought to think seriously through what and whom we are praying for. And John does not mean we do not pray for the lost, for biblically we understand that's a key part of Scripture. We pray for our enemies. We pray for those who do not know truth. But there is a distinction when it comes to these false teachers. And we must take that very seriously. This requires a great level of discernment, I know. Something that we cannot fully unpack this morning, but if if you want to consider this more, I consider you to, to read through a book like 2 Timothy. For in 2 Timothy, Paul gives us a great example, I think, of what it means to pray and minister to people that that are struggling within the church versus what it means to pray for people that are outside the church. And and Paul walks Timothy through that process of praying for the salvation of of others but also understanding there are some, like Alexander, as John mentions, who will eventually be handed off to the wrath of God. And so thankfully we see this process modeled for us in Scripture. So if you want more of that, I encourage you to, to consider books like 2 Timothy for your study. For the time being, though, as we come back to the text, we see that even in the midst of these confusing situations, even in the midst of the, this false teaching, and even when we do not know the end result of that false teaching, that is, we do not know where those people will eventually end up, we can understand our basic calling. And we can understand that as believers who believe in the Son of God, that we have life. And if we're confident in that, we understand that our calling is to then daily come before God in prayer. And if we're confident of that, we can be confident that daily we know prayers will be answered. And if we're confident of that, then we confidently go before God and include our brothers and sisters in Christ in our prayer. And we know that like us, they too will be forgiven. Like us, they too will enjoy that eternal life. And so daily, we go through these routines. Daily, we perform these tasks, however minor they might seem in the moment, knowing that there is a plan behind it all. Knowing that regardless of how minor or insignificant we might seem, that we are playing the part that God has given us. And that the end result is far more glorious than anything we could possibly imagine. It is the kingdom of God itself. And so as we consider all these things, again, for those of you who are unbelievers, my prayer for you is that you might, you might be amazed by the level of confidence that John speaks. And my prayer for you is that you might consider those words uh, that John gives in John 20. And he tells us that, that the reason why he writes that letter, the reason why he writes that gospel is that so you too would believe in the name of God, the name of Jesus. And so unbeliever, this morning... Look at how unsteady your foundation is. And ask yourself, if you were to die at this moment, where would you go? I don't mean that to to be a a heavy-handed tactic. I mean it as, as a real question. How confident are you about your future? Well, apart from faith in Jesus Christ, there is no confidence for there is no life. And so, unbeliever, place your faith in Jesus at this moment. And as I say every week, please talk to me. Talk to one of our elders at the welcome table afterwards. If you ever have any questions about this, we'd be thrilled to help. 
for my brothers and sisters in Christ, let the reminder of John be a reminder to all of us to rid ourselves of that needless doubt. It is not to say that we, we shouldn't take our sins seriously. It's not to say that we shouldn't daily examine ourselves. But it is to say that if we've placed our faith in Jesus Christ, there is no reason to doubt our salvation. And so let us see that confidence. Let us rejoice in that foundation. Let us take seriously the encouragement of John in verses 14 through 17 and examine our prayers. Ask for more confidence. Ask for a greater understanding of God's will. And as we do that, as we pray those things, let us strive to daily obey God in complete confidence, knowing that his will is infinitely greater than anything we could possibly imagine, and knowing his will is certain to come to fruition. Let's close our time in prayer. Father in heaven, you are so gracious to us. You are so gracious to us to give us this word of assurance. It's something that none of us deserve. But it's something that is offered to us not because of what we have done, but because of what you have accomplished in your son, Jesus Christ. God, I pray that we daily return to that foundation. I pray that we do not allow this world to cast doubt upon us. But I pray that daily we might rejoice in the fact that we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we are set in your love for all eternity. As a result of that confidence, God, might we daily respond in prayer. God, cause us to understand your will better today. Cause us to love our brothers and sisters in Christ more every day. Cause us to pray for them more fervently every day, not simply that they would agree with everything we say, but that we would pray for their own forgiveness, that we would pray for their sanctification, that we would pray for greater unity as a church here locally and universally, God. As we pray these things, might we never waver in our confidence. Might we remember that you are sovereign over all creation and it is your will that is done and might we rejoice in the knowledge that that will is infinitely better than we could have ever possibly planned. We love you, God. Be with us now as we close our time. In Jesus' name, amen.